0: Hey, Upsell Coutures, so right now we're going to listen to an interview that I'm going to listen to for the first time. Helen, who did you have an awesome conversation with? I had an awesome conversation with Dana Cowan, the legendary former editor of Food & Wine Magazine who basically was instrumental in creating the modern chef and restaurant world. She's the woman who created the food and wine relationship with Top Chef. She's the woman who was in charge of Food and Wine's Best New Chef program for literally decades. She has not just been through it all as the food world moved from whatever it was in the mid-90s to this insane juggernaut that it is now. She was responsible for making it happen. So, like, my God, Greg, this is a doozy of a conversation.
1: You know, I've met Dana Cowan
0: before, and she's also a very nice person, as I recall. So I, I can't wait to hear two of my favorite food people having a chat about food. Oh, Greg. Yeah, yeah no, that's she, right. She I give you a compliment, re- Helen. That's just... Man, Greg, you're one of my favorite food people. Oh, man. this the, the mutual appreciation flowing around this studio is like... It's a love fest. Yeah. So let's just continue that on. But... But? Before we, yeah. Well, before we get into this, this convo short for conversation uh, is there something else we need to remind our readers about Helen Greg and I love to remind you to subscribe to this podcast and if you're already subscribed to make sure you've given us a five star rating in the Apple podcast store and if you've already done both of those tell a couple of friends about us make sure that the eater upsell is flung far and wide across the world we kind of like what we're doing here and we hope you do too So um, Dana Cowan, for over 20 years, for 21 years, was the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine during, I think, arguably the most interesting time to be the editor-in-chief of Food &
1: Wine magazine, really. Like, the whole world changed on your watch. It was a perfect, perfect time. Before, like, BDBC, which is my initials before me, uh, (laughs) you know, there was a lot of interest in recipes, 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 and not so much the lifestyle. And... There was no food networks, there's no chefs, there were no stars, the ingredients we had access to were so much more limited. And then Post, which is the last year, is still pretty great, but there are so many places to get your information. And so feeling for at some point at Food and Wine, like there you were able to shape opinion and introduce people in a way that no one else could. Was so special. Now it's a little less special because so many people can introduce. New chefs, new talent, new ingredients, new ideas. Yeah. You were there for the exact moment that I think everything shifted. Not just you were there for it. I think you you
0: architected the shift in food culture from this is what I'm having for dinner to this is the tribe I ally myself with.
1: It's my community. It's
0: my people. <laughs> <laughs> and now you have an awesome podcast um, called Speaking Broadly on the Heritage Radio Network, which um, folks at home, if you are not listening to it, you should definitely check out. You interview some of the most interesting women in the food world and adjacent to the food world?
1: I have a couple of goals. One is everyone I talk to, a lot of people are really sick of what they're doing and they want to do something else. And I love coaching people through that. It's one of my weird mini passions. And the thing that people get hung up about is like, I love food, but what can I do? And these jobs that are unseen turn out to be completely fascinating. So I interview really successful women who have jobs who you probably, that you probably haven't heard of. Like, you didn't know that Mara Batali and Joe Bastianich have someone who's in charge of food safety and the environment, who is responsible for getting rid of plastic straws and putting in paper straws, or making much bigger decisions about the way that we eat and shape that, that experience. Maybe that doesn't sound like a good job to you, but it's, no, it's gonna, sounds, but it's really really um, interesting to me. And then these women share their insights and their um, how they became successful and their struggles. Because I think nothing's very interesting if there's no emotion or struggle attached. Sure, that's what makes a good narrative, right? Like seventh grade English
0: class. It's like what's <laughs> like man versus nature, man versus himself. You need an antagonist. Right? Yes.
1: and in this case, it's usually themselves. But
0: <laughs> it always, it always is yourself. The enemy is always within. Well, then I think that the that whole notion of the the less obvious roles in the food world, or maybe the less spotlit roles, is a, such an important one, especially as food has become this cultural juggernaut.
1: I actually haven't interviewed any chefs, which was not exactly my intention, but thinking about it now you see the chefs all the time like if you want to know what April Bloomfield has to say she's amazing and she speaks beautifully and frequently but if you want to know how to be that there's a job called being a restaurant lawyer like you don't even think of that yeah so so
0: working on this podcast i mean working on hosting and creating and distributing this podcast has been a really phenomenal extension of this career that you've had where you know, as we discussed, you were at the helm of one of the most influential outlets for food culture at the time when food culture rose to its most influential place. How does it feel to be communicating in such a more
1: intimate way? And, you know, as we are across the table from each other, talking into microphones, podcasting. I love it. I love being able to have a conversation. The thing that's great about inviting people into a studio and being able to go deep with them. And you get to share so much more, really, than you can share on a page or even on a site. I mean, at at Food & Wine, I oversaw everything from the print to the books to the web to the social. But I love being able to go deep. I love being able to talk to people who don't have a book project or they don't have a restaurant that's opening or they don't have an idea that's about to change the world. Because I'm interested in what's in, inside them, what they are thinking, and how they want to change the culture or the way in which they interact with this restaurant and chef and food world that I love so much. I also, as the podcast has evolved, I've thought about bringing in more of the things that I love. So I started with just interviewing women about success and their jobs and hoping to inspire people. And I realize that's a valuable thing to do, but it's also valuable to share like, what I'm eating, uh, what I'm reading, new products that I've tried, and invite other voices into the show. And so i really loved that. Uh, for example, I wrote a book called Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen because I'm a crappy, crappy cook. And it's, it's real. Like Some people doubt me. I promise you. It's true. And I ordered four fondue pots. A lot. lot, Electric ones, of course, um, on Amazon. And Amazon's so great. You know, they (laughs) they arrive the next day. I did a dry run of uh, the fondue, and it worked out pretty. There were some kinks. But I, I worked them out. I had 16 people to dinner the very next night, and I'm ready with the fondue. I've got the pots all lined up, all plugged in, and I have two friends, like, ready to stir. We begin. There's the wine. There's the, you know, the cheese. And it won't take. Like, it just won't – congeal is the wrong word, but it won't turn into this beautiful cheese sauce. And it was freaking me out. Like, I had tested it. Like, what did I do wrong? I really, really didn't know. Uh, it turned out that I'd omitted a critical step, which is adding cornstarch. Oh. Uh-huh. But I had Daniel Gritzer, who um, sits here in come on my podcast and explain what I did wrong and just to save everybody else in America who might have that crazy idea to go order, you know, a fondue pod. Um, from making my mistakes. So I get to add in additional features or uh, Tini Ulaki, who was with me at Food and Wine for so long, who has a golden palette. She talked about New York Shook and her favorite condiment in the universe, Harissa and preserved Lemon. Yeah. So being able to shape something like that and share more than a single story, but to share products and all that, that's great to figure out who a person is. When they don't have a news peg. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've we've circled around this a little bit, but I wanna really dig in on it, which is the moment in your tenure as the editor of Food and Wine, the moment in the world where the food world suddenly changed, which you were so instrumental in architecting. And I think so you you started your tenure as the editor in chief in Mm ninety-five. Is that right? Yep. And I don't know if there really is a moment that we can pinpoint, but certainly by 2003, 2004, everything felt very different in the world of restaurants and chefs. And by 2006, 2007, it was like fever pitch. Was there a time when you realized, oh, my gosh, things are changing or when you thought to yourself, I need to make this change happen?
1: Um, I think what was exciting about being at Food & Wine was it's like you're on a skiff in the water, and you get to move really fast and in the direction of the current. And and so it's hard to pinpoint a moment because we were at one with the water. We were at one with the trend, and we were recognizing the talent of these chefs, and we were recognizing the, the consumer's interest in incredible food and these great experiences. And now it's such a cliche to say, what an experience food is, but that's what really pushed it over the edge, right? Was that food became an experience in your life that you wanted to grab and you wanted to think about what to eat, you know, not just for breakfast but lunch, dinner. You wanted to plan your vacations around it. You wanted to, you know, really get to know the the chef who'd come out of the kitchen, and it was all kind of sexy and and great. I think that. I feel like one of the pivots was when the best restaurant experiences started being more casual restaurant experiences. Because when the best restaurants and the best experiences were a little bit at arm's length, like you were paying a lot of money and the settings were rather formal, it became hard to like fall in love with that and make that where you wanted to be and how you wanted to interact in the world. But when you have Dave Chang come along and open Mama Fuku noodle bar and the quality of the ingredients was so good and there was so much creativity and it was so much fun and the music was loud and I'm not saying particularly for me like loud music was a thing but just cracking that perfect glass and realizing that a cracked glass is beautiful and that there's so much freedom of expression and that that freedom is what made the food world so great and embracing all kinds of different cultures like that crack from uh, you know um, French, the French stranglehold and then you go to the French American um, restaurants and that was amazing because the, of the rise of uh, America as a place where there could be really good food in America but I, I feel like the, the divide we crossed was when it wasn't just the French and American or Italian and American but it was the um, like the creativity that came from someone's background like like Dave making honest but really gutsy food like taking the gloves off I feel like that was the change and that I think your timing is probably right like 2003 four five and then it caught on throughout the entire country which was also in so exciting to see could you feel your readers' perspective on this evolving? I think that there was more and more connection to the places we were writing about and the and the chefs and their sort of rabid um, interest in the what's new and what's next. And you, we could never give enough of that, nor insight into the interior life of the chefs right so what do they really think where do they really go for dinner and now again it's, it's such a cliche zone like where do the chefs go for dinner like if I see that I like I have to like close my phone <laughs> you know not that I'm not interested but wow we've been on that topic for way too long
0: I mean I definitely remember it was like when that story started happening it felt so fresh and exciting and then after like four or five years of the same like blue ribbon is open till three AM like I was <laughs> just like yeah no I know you,
1: right. you, bring you, me something else please
0: <laughs> it's still I mean it's still open till three AM it's great
1: I should still go to Blue Ribbon but like Right or New York New York Noodletown. Yes. Right. And so, I I could recite like in every city, you know and it doesn't change that much. No. But this Chef off duty thing I think was a particularly fascinating way that
0: Chef as celebrity kind of reached A true sort of celebrity place where it wasn't just on a like when you're a reader or an audience or a food fan it wasn't just oh I want to go to their restaurant it was I want to do what they do like not just like purchasing their offerings but I want to wear the shoes that they're wearing I want to eat the way that they eat I want to live the way that they live you know slug bourbon and stay out till 4 a.m. and get tattoos of you know
1: pigs with butcher diagrams on them and all of that it was this (laughs) chef as object thing you're 100 right and we did so much of that like what are the clogs you know what is the music what's on there um and people really responded like you could sell stuff for them you know because people really wanted to know it was a it was always funny when you tried to expose the real life of the chef because you'd want to go home with them right like hey bring us home and they're like luck just you know i'm never home so that question like what's in my fridge nothing's in my fridge my shoes are in my fridge you know or <laughs> something i've taken from the restaurant is in my fridge like don't really ask or i want to shoot your kitchen you know this was at that moment where they didn't the chefs didn't have any money to have a nice kitchen and they had a crappy stove that came with the rental and boy has that changed because now if you ask a chef to see their kitchen first of all they probably had product donated because the kitchen would be shot the kitchens are gorgeous you know and they're now even if they don't cook in them they certainly can you know heat up foods from the restaurant really beautifully it's
0: <laughs> so good for reheating yeah no that's very true and you know part of all of this and and I think so essential to the impact that food and wine had on the evolution of food culture was top chef which you know now my my memory of this is as a viewer, right? I was I actually I remember when Top Chef debuted, I was I think unemployed and very young and living in a terrible apartment in New York and Project Runway had been huge. and it had been shockingly huge. I remember reading that everyone was surprised that it had done so well, this idea of a career oriented reality show. And Bravo announced that in partnership with Food and Wine, you would be basically taking the project Runway formula and
1: applying it to kitchens. And then what? You you have a great memory, and that is all true. I think one of the things that was particularly astonishing about Project Runway was that they um, they launched it in in December, and it didn't take off. And an executive at Bravo, Lauren Zalesnick, was like, "I believe in this show. Like this is going to work. We just did it at the wrong time." So she redid it in January, and she did wall to wall Project Runway, and boom, yeah. Um, so yes. They came to us for Top Chef, and we thought, this is really uncharted territory. There weren't reality TV shows, right? There, And certainly not in the kitchen, um, not with chefs. And we were worried, like, what would it do to the reputation of food and wine? And we thought about it a lot. Tom Colicchio was associated with it. We trust him completely. And we just said, if Tom Colicchio thinks this is a good idea, so do we. And we sent a bunch of people for screen tests. And Gail Simmons, who was working on the uh, sales side, obviously, history will tell, was (laughs) fantastic. And so we immediately had this really exciting partnership with Top Chef. And going to be on Top Chef, which I got to do as part of the deal, was really one of the most fun parts of that job because every – challenge was different every location was different every interaction was different you would meet incredibly talented chefs you'd have incredibly good meals and you'd have just terrible meals you know which are more entertaining and much easier to talk about (laughs) so it was the full range and then we of course wrote about the the winners in the magazine and we uncovered some incredibly great talent that way Like Stephanie Izard was the first winner, right, of the first season?
0: Or was it she's second season?
1: Um, Harold 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 Dieterle was the um, winner of the first season. But Stephanie is such an incredible—I mean, Harold is a great cook, too. Stephanie's an incredibly talented cook. And sometimes when we were thinking about the Food & Wine Best New Chef Award, it was—we had to think, well, if they won Top Chef, what does it mean for them to also win Best New Chef? Is that a good thing? Is that— Weird, um, but you know Stephanie's cooking was phenomenal. Kristen Kish, another incredible chef to come off that show, who became really part of that food and wine family. Yeah, I mean it. It
0: launched. Not that it launched careers. I mean, obviously they were already working cooks. They had careers that were on very forward-moving paths. But it it rocket boosted so many careers. It was it was so fascinating to watch the world change because suddenly it wasn't just ultra-famous chefs who were on our televisions and were in our consciousness. There was a whole
1: spectrum of celebrity. and I think it also got people very involved in the idea of What happens in the kitchen, how exciting it is, the adrenaline, and you as a viewer feel the adrenaline. The chef feels the adrenaline. And then when you go to a restaurant, like, you know more. Or if you're in your kitchen and you're making something, like my daughter who watches Chopped and Top Chef, she has, of course, no formal training. She is all of 16 years old, and she's really confident, and I swear it's because she watches food TV.
0: It makes it real. You know, it, it elimin the whole there's open kitchens and there's food TV. And what happens on a show like Top Chef or Chopped is so radically different from what happens on like a stand and stir, you know, like a Molto Mario kind of like, I'm at the counter, everything is pre-prepped in front of me, I'm speaking slowly to you, the
1: audience. Like, although I really I'm a huge oh, fan I, of the no, I mean, Mario yes. shows. And <laughs> he imparts so much knowledge and wisdom as he dumps and stirs. So
0: but watching, you know. 15 chefs race against the clock and actually chopping the garlic and, like, actually, you know, cooking the way that you cook when you're not also teaching can be so powerful. That's true. And it's exciting.
1: And you're rooting for somebody. Oh,
0: God. Competition is great. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So do you watch food TV?
1: I watch some food TV. I am not a huge TV watcher in general. I'm more... It actually reflects the way I do so much in my life. I'm a taster. So if I'm eating a meal, I will taste a ton of things. If I'm watching TV, I will sample a lot of different things. It's very hard to get me to sink into one thing and go deep, long, and strong because, you know, you could call me like a hummingbird. <laughs> I I want to try all these different things. I want to be exposed to them. I want to know what they're about. And I... You know, it's very hard to Velcro me to um, a station or an idea.
0: So, like, you'll, you're a channel flipper?
1: I'm a absolutely a channel flipper.
0: I respect that.
1: The only thing that I have stayed obscenely connected to, which is one of those, like, really? Uh, TV shows is Gilmore Girls. Really? Uh-huh. Really?
0: Oh, my God. You predicted exactly my response. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: okay. Let's talk about Gilmore Girls. Did you watch the reboot or the the— the Coda, I guess. So I didn't discover Gilmore Girls until like a year ago, so it's not like I have a history with it. But I got really obsessed with it, and of course I watched The Coda. I mean, <laughs> I really I was you know giving myself only a little Gilmore Girls at a time so that I wouldn't finish too soon and I we covered
0: the the Gilmore Girls extensively on Eater and one of the things that we've been realizing I mean maybe we knew this all along is that so much of culture especially on TV that doesn't present itself as food TV is secretly actually all about food I mean Gilmore Girls is a show that has at it's heart the notion of restaurants and food and I mean you know there's a lot of other stuff at it's heart too and also like as a journalist of approximately age Rory is supposed to be I'm deeply annoyed by how she presents <laughs> reality but like, but no it's but it's it's kind of a food show you know it's there and everything
1: well certainly when they brought Luke Steiner to life you know um I do wonder like what would that show have been like if you know Stumptown and like the coffee revolution had happened Like sure, would that have been a completely different meeting place? The third wave coffee, exactly. (laughs) Can you imagine? And everybody would have had computers, which of course you know would have driven Luke crazy. But like, would the coffee have been good or bad? You know, would it have been, um, you know, one girl cookies or like what would have what the food would have been? Would Luke have been just an insufferable coffee bro? Exactly, like going on and
0: on about his single origin, hand roasted, small batch, blah blah. Well, the, and then you have other shows like Master of None, like the new crop of shows that I think in some ways are kind of picking up the legacy of shows like Gilmore Girls. They're kind of exploring how people make their way through their lives. A show like Master of None is intentionally built with uncountable references to the real food world. I mean, you can go through and pick out the restaurants in New York that scenes take place at. They mention sites like Eater. You know, it's it's not in a in a non-food world but
1: I i mean aziz is absolutely obsessed with food like genuinely truly and what i love about that is how the character the person can shape the show in that way like the gilmore world is completely fake the aziz world pretty real for him
0: celebrities who are obsessed with food are such an interesting phenomenon to me i think you know you have your Aziz, yeah, but he hasn't written a cookbook yet, I guess I should say yet, because I feel like so often a celebrity will kind of out themselves as food obsessed and you'll
1: start, if you follow their Instagram or whatever, you will be like, oh no, they're at all the John and Vinny restaurants. Like, I was going to say, it's really all about the Instagram. I mean, you can <laughs> follow them. Like Chrissy Teigen, who obviously had a gigantically best-selling cookbook. You know, if you read through her Instagram, you're like, oh my God, you actually, you love food. Really? And so when you do a, a cookbook, there's something authentic about it, which is nice, which is not true for every celebrity, of course.
0: It's a weird thing, right? Like the celebrity cookbook thing?
1: Yes. But I, I think that what's interesting is that it can hit, like it can work if there's authenticity. And, you know, that's like a crappy, horrible word. But whereas with some people, you believe them, and then when you look at the recipes, you believe them. Like there's a transfer of trust. Mm -hmm. And so often, the relationship between a celebrity and food is not a trusting relationship. Sure. That's absolutely the case.
0: I think, you know, Chrissy Teigen's cookbook is a phenomenal cookbook. And there were probably plenty of folks who were skeptical of it. Like, how is this hot model going to come out with a good cookbook? But as you said, she's legit. But then on the other end of the celebrity cookbook spectrum, you have books that come out with astonishing frequency from, <laughs> from folks where it kind of feels like they sat down with their agent and they were like, listen, the rolls are drying
1: up. Why don't you try the food world? That seems like an easy one to crack. Or more so, no books are selling. Oh, wait a minute. You know what books are selling? Cookbooks are selling. Why don't you do that?
0: Yeah. And like out of nowhere, suddenly they're like posting Instagrams about how much they love roasting Brussels sprouts.
1: And it's like, oh, man. OK, what's your pet, like what's your biggest pet peeve of celeb cookbook?
0: Oh, my God. Like the specific book or the yeah, or so bad, that they or... do?
1: Oh, God, there are so many. I don't know. What's yours while I'm priming the poem? I, I feel like I don't pay very much attention to them because I see them and I think, I don't trust you.
0: Well, you know, I think that there are things that happen in the legit ones. There are things that happen in, in like a Chrissy Teigen book that also will happen. And, you know, to protect the guilty, I'm not going to name the celebrity cookbooks that really drive me crazy. Really? I say them. Well, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe they're real. Maybe I miss. This is uncharacteristically generous of me. But your sweet side's coming out. <laughs> but I think, you know, the introduction to a cookbook is always for me the most fascinating part because it's where the reality of the author comes out. And in so many of these slapdash, like, I'm going to salvage my D-list career celebrity cookbooks, <laughs> the intro is like, it's like Mad Libs. It's like, I grew up cooking by my grandmother's stove. Trust me, I really love food. All of my friends love my dinner parties. And it's like, man, of course all your friends say they love your dinner parties. They love you. <laughs> like, they don't love your food. You're right. making, like, really boring, boneless, skinless chicken breasts, and talking about how they're naughty because there's sugar in the barbecue sauce. Like, no, dude.
1: Mm, bad. Um, it does Mad Libs makes me think of Mad Libs um, restaurant menus now, which is my total pet peeve. Um, is this something that you've noticed? Yes, but tell me more. So there's a sign at a restaurant right near your studio, and it has the breakfast bowl, and it has every trendy ingredient of the moment and it made me laugh you know it had maca powder and it had blueberries and it had coconut yogurt and um it had like maybe some granola and i thought like it's a travesty it's like i have a jar or a bowl and i'm going to take one from every column of every like trendy item and put it together and i think people will come and buy it there's probably chia seeds in there somewhere almost certainly and probably acai and like goji berries and exactly unicorn powder and (laughs) (laughs) and I just think wow is that what we've come to in certain parts I think the the healthy zone is particularly mad Libby to me at the moment you know like take one avocado toast and take one acai bowl and take one and um, it's kind of disappointing what do you think I agree I absolutely agree.
0: Though the, the the healthy wellness thing is also, I think, kind of a new facet to our cultural obsession with food. There used to be a really bright line between we're talking about health and we're talking about food, and food meant pleasure, and health was like in, you know, Prevention magazine. And suddenly we have things like Bon Appetit launching an entire wellness-oriented sub-vertical and it's integrated into an area that used to be entirely about pleasure and now it's like finding
1: pleasure in control. Absolutely. I think that's a great move forward. At the same time that we have, you know, like smashed patties and gooey cheese and, um, you know, crazy milkshakes, there's also a concomitant interest in health, wellness, that spans you know, um, quite a space because it's not just like I'm making a great smoothie, but it's lifestyle or it's um, balance. So I was talking to Missy Robbins, who has Lilia um, in Brooklyn, and she's an incredible, incredible chef. Talking to her about the way she runs her kitchen now and the importance of balance for her team I just, I thought that was so compelling. And, you know, she brings in people to do yoga and she makes sure that they take time off. And whoever thought that that would be the evolution of the kitchen. But I feel like when the restaurant world is part of the real world, that's where the, f- the future of restaurants is. And I feel like Lilia marks a new phase in that way. Often when a chef or a restaurateur
0: publicly makes a move towards a more professionalized or employee wellness-oriented work environment in their restaurant, there is a fairly vocal backlash from some other chefs. I'm thinking, you know, specifically you'll have someone who says, oh, no, my kitchen doesn't have yelling. You know, I treat people with respect, and then you'll have a certain subset of maybe a a particular type of bro chef who will take to Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and be like, if you can't handle me saying, go fuck yourself in the kitchen, why are you in my kitchen? How do you feel about the, the part of the
1: food world that isn't ready to move forward? I feel like actually mm, there aren't that many chefs who at this point in time will say, if you can't take it, get out of my kitchen. I think they're much more... Uh, there's much more screen. You know, there are many more people saying they really believe in treating people well. So, um, and I'm very Pollyanna positive. So I <laughs> I believe them. And I believe that they, they want to be that way. And I think that there is really an, an evolution in the kitchen. This seems to be particularly something that focuses around women who lead
0: kitchens. I think there is still for all of the progress that we've made as human beings in the world, it's, still much more difficult for a woman to run a kitchen in the way that men have been able to run kitchens in the past. I think, you know, there are fewer women on any list of the most famous chefs in the world. There are vanishingly few women who make it to the top. And there, alongside of that whenever that's pointed out, there will be a crew of people and sometimes women among them who will say, well, women just need to work harder. Or maybe this isn't the right environment for you. Or, like, of course there are no women in the kitchen. They all left to raise babies. This seems, I don't know. I mean, your your
1: your podcast focuses on women's journeys and their stories. I do. I think that the, um, the question of why so few women chefs are first recognized, right, I think it starts with recognition that women need to be heard and recognized. That's partly a press problem and it's partly... Women who don't want to speak up and speak out and make necessarily make all that effort. It's something that I heard from Tracy Desjardins um, from Chardonnay in uh, San Francisco a while ago. It's part of the conversation that I have with the women on my show or women chefs that I speak to. They feel very comfortable promoting a project. They don't feel comfortable promoting themselves. I've heard that almost to the last person. And I think that has an effect. Um, It doesn't have an effect whether they're doing a good job in the kitchen. It has an effect on whether they're recognized, whether they chase the press, whether um, they can get the money then, because you need a certain amount of recognition to then get the money to start your restaurant. It's really hard for women to raise money. That seems to be a huge challenge. And I think because of the two challenges that I just said, what the great improvement, because I'm very Pollyanna positive, the great improvement is that there are a lot more women chefs cooking and a lot more women chefs getting to positions of power and making great food and feeding people really well. And we are, I really believe, just a hair's breadth away from those women in the chef to cuisine positions, executive chef positions, um, from you know coming out and more to the forefront. There are more really talented women in top positions in kitchens across this country than ever, ever, ever have been there before.
0: It's an exciting time to be female, I
1: guess. Well, I think, you know, in a way um, it's exciting because there's there's so much wind coming at you, pushing you back, and at the same time there's so much wind pushing you forward. There's so many women who want to support women and really push them ahead. And so you just have to hope that the wind at the back is stronger and more powerful and more energetic than the hateful wind facing you. Hate the hateful wind. <laughs> such a visceral way of putting it. I love
0: that. It feels very apt, too. It's a, this, I don't know, rejection of progress that is very off-putting.
1: Extraordinary.
0: So 20-plus years ago, did you have any sense that you would be sitting somewhere like this today on the other side of having
1: changed the food world oh my goodness i mean there's so much wrong with that sentence but okay, yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> 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 let's just start with when i when i went to food and wine I, every other job i'd had i'd had for i went to college for four years my first job which was at Vogue magazine was four years i had a job at house and garden magazine was four years i'm like food and wine four years awesome you know let, let's see how that goes i don't i'm not from the food world um, I'm really excited about this editor-in-chief thing, but, you know, I'll do it for food, and then I could do it for home, I could do it for travel. No. So I could never have predicted that long ago. Like, I was just hoping I'd get through four years and still have my job. Um, and then in the middle of the job, like, at, at 10 years, I was like, wow, I wonder how long I can do this, because this is really great, you know? <laughs> how long is this going to be? And, um, and, and now, sort of, on the other side, what excites me is that I get to take all of those ideas that uh, were about how to communicate with people and to share stories and then have them in, you know, podcast is one way I want to do it, but I have, of course, because I love thinking up new things. You know, there's a million different ways. And I think there's a new way to think about food at home for the future. So I'm excited about redefining how we think about food at home for the future that's my sort of passion at the moment how
0: are we how are we thinking about food
1: at home now and what's wrong with it I think that there's um, a conf- a conflict between the way that people um, think about what they want to do and how they actually live and the conflict is that they want to say that they're cooking all the time and they want to have the best food and they want to be shopping at the farmer's market. And that's their behavior some of the time, I mean, obviously. But people don't have a lot of time and they have very high expectations. And so the net result of that is what people actually do at home is use digital access to bring the best to home. And so I feel like There's something in accepting that a hybrid life can be extraordinary and that you can, you know, make the ribs or, you know, barbecue the food, but you can also bring stuff in and make that really special. And so I believe in the specialness of gathering people and that we should all lower the bar and expectation about how you get those people together and how you feed them this great food.
0: How do you feel about that debate about whether meal kits actually
1: count as cooking? I don't think that's really a debate. I think it's cooking. I think it can be great, and I think it would be a total pain in the butt. Um, You know, I think if you hack a meal kit, I I, I think hacking meal kits is great. Um, I think that meal kits can take such a long time. So meal kits save you some things that are excellent. Like a meal kit will save you the time of shopping. It'll save you the time of some chopping, some prepping. And mostly it'll save you the time of thinking, what in God's name do I want to cook tonight? Because that can really be the obstacle between you and your meal. And you're so bored. So um, I think it's a boredom alleviator. But then there's cooking. And I think people don't have a whole lot of time. So I think that you can fall into a meal meal kit trap. And that trap is, oh my God! There is this cardboard box in my refrigerator, and it is, you know, taunting me, and it's saying, "Ha ha! You know, I'm going to go bad. You have to cook me. You have to cook me. You have to cook me." And um, so, I think that's a just. I think that can be discouraging. Yeah, I mean, the, have you I, ever subscribed to a, a meal kit?
0: I have not ever been a regular subscriber, but I've cooked from them a few times, and I've tried a bunch of different ones. And for me. It is that kind of paralysis of choice that often prevents me from cooking dinner as often as I would like. So I like that the meal kit kind of chooses it for me. But the real win for me with meal kits has been with my husband, who's not really a cook. Well, he
1: is now in large part thanks to meal kits. Because, So do you think having cooked from meal kits, he could now like buy some chicken and some broccoli and come up with a, a meal that has a sauce? Well, that's, that's the bridge that I think that we have not quite figured out as a culture, right?
0: I think that... I know lots of people who have crossed that line. I, there there are folks who work here at Eater who we've talked about the fact that like they much like you were saying, you know, you were the editor of Food and Wine and didn't know how to cook just because you work at Eater doesn't mean you really know how to cook either. Like we go out to eat in restaurants all the time, but they would get meal kits. It helps break down the terror of food because, you know, the flip side, right, the other edge of the blade in food culture becoming this extraordinary phenomenon is that suddenly the stakes are very high and everybody's Instagramming their perfect off-the-cuff dinner and what you don't see is the massive mess in the kitchen or the right. five <laughs> ugly avocado toasts that you made before you made the pretty one. And so it can be very intimidating and the truth is, and I'm sure you learn this over the course of, of putting together your cookbook and, and most anybody, I think, who, who kind of comes to cooking after a period of intimidation, you realize that it's actually kind of easy. It's
1: just scary. No, I don't really agree with you. I mean, I don't. I, I don't find it scary, right? Because I don't. I don't have a, a bar of <laughs> failure. Apparently, you know. So, like, it's hard to be intimidated. I think it can be really irritating because it doesn't come out right. But um, I also would say it's not always that easy. Like, I'm not stupid. I can read a recipe, but there's Things that will always go wrong. So I, I mean, it depends how simple your food is. Like if you're grilling chicken and you're steaming a vegetable or you're roasting one, like that's, I agree, that that's pretty simple. But if you go like half a step up, um, so that part is simple. But when you add flavor and complexity, um, then you're adding technique, and then with technique comes, you know, potential crises. Oh. No, you're right. But, you know, you actually – you mentioned reading
0: a recipe and I think that a lot of it lies in that too. The way that recipes are written – they're often written for someone who is familiar with a kitchen and familiar with techniques and it will say, you know, sauté the mushrooms until brown. And I'm like what the hell does that mean? You know, if you're
1: if you're new to this. There's also a lot of hidden steps in um, recipes. So it, it – like if you read the ingredient list, it looks like it's going to take you 10 minutes. But then there's like 45 minutes of work in the chopping. Oh my god, that drives me crazy. <laughs> it's very true. So, so what's the path forward? Pick one. Um, the path forward for for what?
0: For I don't know. For for fixing home cooking. For becoming
1: comfortable with not doing it all. Oh, I love that question. I think the path forward is absolutely accepting and reflecting back. What's real, which is pretty darn great, which is, like, if your toast is ugly, it was still probably delicious. Like, I love ugly food. I'm so sad that, like, brown food has no place. Like, at Food & Wine, brown food had no place. And believe me, in the world of Instagram, it really has no place unless it's crusty and, you know, has texture and juice and all that. But brown food is – can taste so good. So I'm, like, I celebrate the ugly, celebrate the, you know, that half-cooking. Celebrate, you know, what I think of as the intersection of like Ina and Sandra Lee, except on a much more elevated scale. And then take the things that you think, you know, are you're like if you're going to order takeout, like make it a meal. Just because it came in a cardboard box with someone on a bicycle doesn't mean that when you put it on the table, it can't be for friends and be celebrated. And I just, I think that the, um, breaking the reality and Accepting you want to eat really good food quickly, uh, I feel like that's totally the path forward. And to break any of that concern that, like, it has to be perfect, it so doesn't. It should be delicious and it should be fast and it should be everything that you love on your table all the time. That sounds perfect. Well, I don't know if we can get any better than that, so I think it's probably time
0: for us to have the lightning round. Great. Woo-hoo, lightning round music. Um, today, we have a guest lightning round question asker. It's Monica Burton, one of our editors at Eater.com. Hey, Dana. This is Monica Burton. I'm an editor on Eater.com and editorial producer on the upsell. And I have some questions for you. What now deceased person would be your ideal dinner companion?
1: <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> dead people. De- wait, they're they're going to be alive when I have dinner with them, right? Um, I don't know. Freya Stark, a world traveler, and adventurer from another time and place who can um, make the world in- around her and around me seem incredibly exciting. A woman who's stood out. That's a great answer.
0: <laughs> no, that's fantastic. How about a
1: food person? Oh, do I need a food person? No, well, I'm, I'm just modifying Monica's question. Oh, um the for person has to be dead, huh? I guess we could arrange their death for the sake of the dinner party if we have to. Um I I'd bring back Julia Child. I loved I loved Julia. She was so entertaining uh and so generous. And I loved having dinner with her when she was alive. So I'd love to be able to repeat that because I didn't have that pleasure often enough. But you had it at all. Which is incredible. I I did. I went to um, Julia Child's house in Boston, and she drove me and Tina Lucky, the executive editor of food and wine, to um, a meal in Boston, and it was the most terrifying ride of my life because though she could cook, she couldn't really drive. And she liked the meal, but she didn't love the meal, and from her I learned This, you know, very important phrase, we really had such a good time. And that seemed to make the chef very happy. That's a very good phrase. Isn't that good?
0: That is really, I feel like that's kind of in the same frame as like saying to someone, wow, you really did that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like that.
0: And it sort of hides hides the bad inside. And
1: exactly, you don't an get, observation. <laughs> and no one's going to say, "But what about the food?" You know, right. you don't. There's no follow-up to that. Well,
0: I didn't know Julia Child was a terrifying driver, but somehow that feels very in character for her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Monica. What's your next question for Dana? If you had to host a non-food or travel show, what would it be about?
1: Oh, I. My first love is design, so it would absolutely be a design show, and. It would indulge my absolute obsession with all things pottery and paint. So it would be a show that would go all around the world visiting potter studios and then setting tables I couldn't get away with from the food completely in rooms that were painted to color coordinate with the pottery or reflect it in some way. And then I'd call and take out and fill the bowls, plates, glasses with incredible food
0: that sounds amazing
1: do you follow potters on instagram of course i mean i just i love i love potters i love um i love the color i love the texture i love the the shapes i love the creativity i love that they're it's painting on a a three-dimensional surface
0: i could watch videos of people
1: throwing pots on a wheel like all day right there's People have yoke porn, which doesn't really do it for me. But, you know, clay shaping, coming together and going apart and coming together, and it's great. It's so good. Monica, what's your next question?
0: What's something you can do on a podcast that you can't do in writing?
1: The thing you can do on a podcast that's really hard to do in writing is, you know, laugh, tell a joke, be spontaneous, go into strange little whirls and worlds that seem like too much of a digression in print. But in conversation, you get to make discoveries that aren't so linear. And I love the nonlinear relation of um, people and words.
0: That's great. Yeah, That's that's absolutely true. I never thought of it that way, but you're totally right. Cool. Monica, that was a fantastic question. I bet you have more. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Come on, Monica.
0: <laughs> What's the worst dining trend right now? Oh, but you're such an optimist. We're forcing <laughs> you into negativity. <laughs> Monica, this is vicious. I love
1: it. The I, I think I probably mentioned the, the thing that I like the, the least, which is Mad Libs menus. And a Mad Lib menu is one where the chef does not exhibit any personality, but it's a collection of the meme's tropes and best of lists of other people's original ideas yep
0: that'll do it dana Cowan, thank you so much for
1: joining us today thank you so much for having me it was so much fun to have this conversation me too
0: not me too what do i say in this one? yes it was it was so much fun doesn't your mom say like just say thank you just say thank you thank you (laughs) thank you (laughs) thank you it was this was great this has been such a delightful way to spend an hour thank you for joining us if our listeners want to find more of you, where can they find you? Where can they find your podcast?
1: Um, they can find me at fw scout on Twitter and on Instagram. And they can find me also at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. And... The podcast speaking broadly which is hosted on heritage radio network can also be found on itunes and stitcher and
0: listeners at home or on your commutes or wherever it is that you have our voices in your ears a reminder that if you're not already subscribed to the eater upsell please subscribe and if you are subscribed tell a couple of friends how great we are and encourage them to subscribe too you can also just like grab their phones and subscribe them without their knowledge if that's <laughs> the kind of relationship that you have with them we will Go into the credits now, and I did a bad outro, and it's fine. Cool. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Gianone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor in chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. you. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your
1: beautiful self.